Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Three-time Grammy Award-winning musician, actor, and activist Harry Belafonte is one of the most successful Jamaican artists of all time, renowned for bringing the Caribbean sound to the international mainstream. Just as he is an advocate of world music, Belafonte is acclaimed for his lifelong commitment to political and humanitarian activism. A close friend and advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Belafonte was at the forefront of the civil rights movement and continued to campaign for racial equality and global peace long after Dr. King's death. In this conversation, Belafonte spoke with writer and curator Kimberly Drew about balancing art and activism and the power of folk art. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Mr. Belafonte. All right. I am so excited. Oh, Kimberly, you look so spiffy. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so let's start from the start. I want to begin our conversation talking about Sankofa Organization so that everyone can get a little bit familiar with the work that you do. Why did it seem important to build your own organization? And specifically, could you talk to us about some of the mission and, and why the mission was designed in the way that it was? Well, on many occasions I've had artists, fairly high-profiled artists, uh, come to me and express their desire to be more engaged in social, social activities and social conscience work. And uh, they ask me for guidance as to what's the best destination. And I thought that perhaps one of the easiest things to do would be create an organization that would be committed to helping uh, attached high-profile artists, or not necessarily so high-profile, but artists to social activism, hence Sankofa. The name Sankofa comes from a bit of West African mythology. Sankofa is a bird, and it is a bird whose title whose mythology suggests that uh, we must not let the past die, that we should retrieve our young and educate them to the ways, ways of the world and uh, hook up artists with politics. And so this started Sankofa. Uh, it is now run by a group of young people my daughter being one of them. And uh, I am particularly grateful to a lot of artists like John Legend and Alicia Keys and others who have uh, been most supportive of the work that Sankofa does. And uh, it's just bringing art and politics together in a room to let them understand how much in need of each other they are. Absolutely. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. So I'd like to continue on this theme of the Sankofa and the virtues of looking back to look forward. In the beginning of your career, it seems like you may have been the unlikely hero of the story. Could you talk to us a little bit about your upbringing in New York and between New York and Jamaica and some of the values that were instilled in you at a young age that still resonate with you today? Well. I was born in Harlem, and uh, one of the joys of my life. <laughs> uh, but my mother uh, was an immigrant woman who came from the island of Jamaica, and uh, she was a d domestic worker, and she raised her children uh, as best she could, because by and large she was a, a single parent. Uh, I learned from her most of the things that shaped my life and shaped my behavior. Uh, she gave me my values and uh, uh, made me a tenacious rebel on the issues of poverty. 
I've never understood the cruelty of the, of the system. Why anybody has to be poor has always eluded me uh, uh, when looking at human conduct and human behavior. But this country is uh, uh, governed by a lot of racist principles. And I think uh, people of color have been victimized to the extreme. And as a young kid, I just always said to myself, well, I'm not too sure how much I can do about all this, but I not let it go unchallenged. And very early on, I, uh, <laughs> thanks for the applause, but I didn't know that I had much, much alternative. <laughs> you either give in or give out. Hey. And I wasn't going to give in. Uh, so I decided to just, wherever I met, uh, Poverty and the injustices of poverty had make it my business to uh, do everything I could to take care of it. Fortunately, I, very young, I became an artist and that life in the arts gave me a platform because I was quite taken with the fact that so early on in my life so many people should have found what I had to offer as an artist is something that delighted them. Or that uh, having a constituency uh, that came to hear me uh, bring joy to their day was a good place for me to start bringing information to the day. Mm. And I decided to make arts and activism a necessary combination. I find that now today with a lot of artists like the couple I've just mentioned and others there is a consciousness that's taking place among young people in relationship to social activism. And we meet with some regularity and discuss objectives and things to do and use our collective power to make a difference in how America does business. And uh, we try to change the rules of the game. Yes. I'd like to keep talking about the early days in New York, um, and specifically about your career as a musician. There is a, um, an incredible story about your start, where you were playing with Max Roach, and with when, Charlie, when you were playing with uh, Charlie Parker and oh, Max Roach, and yeah. a lot of us in the audience know them as these huge jazz legends. But I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like and how it shaped you in your career. I was quite surprised. Uh, uh, with the way in which my efforts as an artist had been received uh, so early on in my life. And when uh, Charlie Parker and Max Roach and Miles Davis and uh, uh, stepped to the plate, they were most supportive and most generous in the way in which they encouraged me to continue my work in the arts. Uh, I took that seriously. I also looked at the fact that having a constituency as large as mine was beginning to display, that if just having an audience that delighted in what you sang or what you acted doing was not enough. Mm. That this was a platform to spread the word. And I decided to become, uh, using my platform as an artist to be an activist. And in that context, uh, uh, I was rewarded with a relationship with a man by the name of Paul Robeson, probably one of the greatest, probably one of the greatest of our history. And he was a man of great dignity, a great scholar. He had a impeccable power uh, with his voice and his art. And I watched him very carefully and what he did. And he would tolerate no injustice. And he was always in the thick of the battle. And this nation crucified him for that fact. I looked at him and I said, whatever he has left behind for those of us uh, to inherit, it was a worthy mission uh, to pick up his, his, his mantle and to run with it. I think that uh, my life has been more than rewarded with the fact that uh, to be an activist 
was rewarded with the, with the fact that a lot of people sought my services. Uh, Dr. King being one of the uh, principal players and people like uh, Paul Robeson himself and uh, others, Malcolm X and people whom I worked with and served and ultimately meeting with the Kennedy family and digging in deeply into that period of our political uh, history and helping to stay the course to shape some of the things that uh, the Kennedys did. They appointed me to become a member of the Peace Corps and I found that as an excellent opportunity to get to know more about the world. I became deeply immersed in Africa and African affairs, mostly with all the young men and the rebels whom I met who were fighting tenaciously for African independence. One of the people who was critical to that relationship with Africa was Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, she was a remarkable woman. She came to me one day to ask me if I would help her uh, with a program she was initiating in the black community in Harlem. Anyway, I joined her and uh, she then led me to meet all these various Africans. She was at the United Nations at the time and uh, Wiltwick, that's it. The Wiltwick School for Boys was the name of the organization and it took care of young people who were, uh, had come up against the law and they were too young to be jailed and to be incarcerated. So she created this space called Wiltwick uh, for these young men, primarily young men of color, uh, to be uh, housed and guided uh, in, a, in a life of responsibility. In that work with her and with the work she did at the United Nations, I began to meet all the young Africans who were coming uh, to this country to participate in the work of the UN. And I made some very, very close friends, one of them being Nelson Mandela. And uh, with that kind of relationships and people, uh, my work was pretty well uh, declared and, and cut out for me. I have no regrets. The life I've lived has been amply rewarded, primarily with the number of people who have called on me. I'm not always sure they did the right thing, but uh, I sure took advantage of them <laughs> to make my voice heard on issues of uh, social oppression. Uh, and that reward has led me here to be sitting with you and with this audience. And I couldn't think of a better way to be rewarded for a lifetime of anguish. <laughs> I'm sure that we have many artists here in the audience. Uh, one of the things that I find the most profound about your legacy is how you brought culture to so many different audiences. Uh, thinking about your work in the civil rights movement, you coordinated with musicians to come and sing to the people who were marching. And I was curious about what that research process looked like. Um, were you taking Dr. King or Malcolm X to go to concerts? <laughs> what, what, what was the process for, for introducing culture to some of the people that uh, were organizers in, in the movement? Well, long before I became an artist, I was an activist. I don't think one can be born into poverty and not find a lot of room to uh, find things to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I... Uh, saw the inhumanity of poverty and I decided that uh, whatever my life would become I would commit myself to trying to make change uh, with all the ingredients that go to make up poverty. My mother was a great example of that and I saw the, her dignity and her wisdom in dealing with the issues of the day. And my mother, <laughs> she took no prisoners. Uh, she was quite quite aggressive in her attitude towards injustice and that passed on to her children. And I just said that if ever I have the opportunity, 
uh, to make a difference, I would uh, seize on those opportunities to do that. Uh, the popularity that I found uh, with the audiences that I performed to around the world not only uh, supported me in, 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 in the, the art, the art that I participated in, my films, the records, etc. But uh, I also found a, a great community of uh, respondents to the issues of uh, poverty. And uh, I think Paul Robeson and Dr. King and Eleanor Roosevelt, who sought my services, it was based on the, my popularity as an artist. They saw that I commanded a constituency that uh, they would like to have me influence with their cause. And I found great honor in the work that they did and felt that making such an alliance was the worthy thing to do. Uh, I've never regretted a moment of it. Uh, I, from time to time, paid a price because the opposition, uh, the reactionary forces in this country are tenacious in their behavior of cruelty. This nation was conceived in violence. Uh, it was conceived in the oppression of people of color. When the Europeans came here and discovered uh, Native Americans, uh, their uh, greatest practice was to oppress the indigenous and eventually practice genocide. They, they then replaced that when there were no longer Native Americans to exploit. They went out and got a hundred years of slavery. And uh, hence my relationship to this nation. And when slavery was no longer fashionable, uh, they created a hundred years of segregation, which gave me all the tools uh, to work with in opposing the, uh, the acts uh, of segregation. I think that uh, when I discovered a constituency that was ready to hear what I had to say, that I should utilize that space by bringing information that was very definitely in opposition to poverty. And uh, that led me to a lot of things and a lot of places. And uh, I was rewarded by the company that uh, sought my services. And I was always aware of the fact that uh, such an anointing, such a blessing was worthy of behavior that carried dignity and carried uh, anger. Uh, uh, Dr. King always said uh, a good dose of anger is necessary for our movement. Uh, do not deny anger. Anger isn't the problem. As a matter of fact, we should attract anger. It's not being angry, it's what you do with the anger. And uh, I decided to uh, change the canvas to be a part of a mission of noble men and women who sought to make a difference every day in their lives. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of the young people that I am talking with today, a lot of the, I made it my business to become very involved with the Bloods and the Crips, uh, young gangs that were made up of the community of color uh, and Latino as well. And uh, starting in California, uh, I got very much involved with the Bloods and the Crips and uh, became uh, appointed by them to uh, negotiate a peace between African-Americans and Latinos, uh, the Chicanos. And in Northern California, a young Latino by the name of Nani Alejandres and a young man by the name of Bo Taylor, Blood of the Crip, and uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Latin gangs uh, brought them together for the first major peace conference that they had and uh, successfully negotiated that they stopped shooting one another. And uh, once they stopped shooting one another, that meant that we had work to do. So I just stepped in here and began to do all of the things that uh, I do. Uh, it has cost me, uh, from time to time, uh, 
uh, because of the opposition. Uh, there are a lot of people out here who are quite angry when uh, the oppressed speak out against their oppression. Mm -hmm. uh, they find that an act of uh, uh, ungraciousness, that we should be thankful that they let us breathe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, yes, as long as I draw a breath, you go hear from me. <laughs> I am very grateful for the life that I've been given, uh, particularly for uh, the people whom I've come to meet that were so, so incredible in the, in the things they did. I mean, to know Nelson Mandela is no small gift. Uh, or to welcome uh, him to New York. Huh? Or to welcome him to New York. Well, that, that was the least I could have done. I mean, that, he wanted very much to see what America was like. Yeah. He studied the civil rights movement very carefully during the 27 and a half years he was in prison. Uh, he watched our movement very carefully, what Dr. King and Malcolm X and uh, others had achieved, and molded his own, the ANC, the African National Congress, molded, uh, molded their path in terms of what he would do if he ever had the opportunity to be released. None of us thought we'd ever see him alive, but he did prevail. And when he was released, he decided that uh, he would adapt many of the tenets of the civil rights movement. He was most admiring of Dr. King and Malcolm. And when I met uh, Madiba, he had uh, given me an opportunity to uh, become very much involved with Africa. And I met so many of the young African leaders and became very much engaged in African history and African need. And I think that uh, uh, as much as they thought they may have been punishing me, what I was was truly rewarded to have been put into a position to make these relationships and to be uh, embraced by uh, so many. I think the most important thing is that uh, uh, I've seen change. Uh, I am somewhat disappointed in, in the outcome because the young people like yourself, my mission was to make sure that I left this world a better place than the way I found it. Uh, that meant commitment to ending injustice. To end injustice is a fierce fight. Those who would have, who saw us working to that end, uh, crucified us in many ways. But the reward was in the act itself. And with the many noble men and women that I met along the way, I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I learned a lot from them, and we did a lot to change the world. I regret that uh, uh, the outcome of things is not exactly the way we thought it, it would end. I'm now uh, well over 90 years of age, and uh, uh, I always felt that the use of my life in the service of making America a, a place of, of joy and to make it a place of uh, uh, promise was very much in the, in the cards. And uh, to do that, uh, we received the animosity of the ruling class. We received the animosity of Wall Street. We received the animosity of bankers and and uh, people who, who uh, wielded a lot of power. And uh, uh, I said, well, if that's what I got to do, uh, I want make, make an attempt at doing it, and doing it in a way that uh, would make me worthy of the life and the gifts I've been given. I think that uh, Donald Trump, was not in my history, it was not in my DNA. Mm. I figured that by the time I reached 91 years of age, we would have found America in a more joyous place. Instead, we find America in a place of uh, a great dilemma. I'm not too sure this nation is going to survive. Uh, I think the cruelty uh, that 
is expressed by Donald Trump is just the villainy of a personality. What is infinitely more important is not that he exists, but he's, he's supported by so many. And if this nation is to be governed by that ilk, then I don't think America will survive. Uh, we have done a much as a nation uh, uh, to destroy this planet. We have, we have exploited uh, the land. We've destroyed the mountains. We've destroyed life. Uh, many species are on their way to extinction because of how we've polluted the air with our greed. And uh, because that one factor is the central to the American identity, the fact of greed uh, has somewhat diminished us as a people and a nation. But as long as I live, I shall continue to uh, uh, attack that fact and try to make a difference. Uh, those who oppose you have power. And uh, uh, my task is to uh, bring truth to power. And, uh, On the note of truth, I'm curious if you could talk to us, and this is a question that actually was uh, handed to me by my cousin, who was the first person to play me, Carmen Jones. Um, how would you say in your life your relationship to truth has changed? Um, is your relationship to truth any different than it was, per se, 60 years ago? Well, I was deeply concerned that the black community had turned its back on itself. I think that what we inherited from Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and from Dr. King and from Malcolm and all the rest was a huge gift. During our time, we met the enemy and we defeated him. We were responsible in our time for ending segregation. We were responsible in our time for ending the fact that we didn't have the right to vote. We won that. We changed the, uh, the, the, the space. And I think that the, uh, so caught up in the newfound joys of freedom, uh, the right to vote, the right to employment. Many of us went off to become bankers and very wealthy and we began to be accommodated in the opportunities that America had to offer, in the way in which we found ourselves as school teachers and firemen and people just doing ordinary everyday work that black people were denied. And in having successfully campaigned against that fact and been successful, we got very heady with going off because we forgot the community. We forgot that there was still this a grievous entity in our midst. Everybody became preoccupied with uh, themselves. And as a consequence, uh, we turned our back on what was going on in our communities. I think that uh, uh, we have become somewhat complacent. I don't understand why the black community has become so voiceless in its response to Donald Trump. Uh, not just that he's an evil man, but his racial attitudes, the things that he says, are absolutely uh, unacceptable. And I think this community should make this nation ungovernable as long as that's the person that speaks. As long as he's in office. And I think that uh, the absence of a a powerful black voice has uh, been very, very evident. And I, every day I'm thankful for people like Brian Stevenson and a lot of young people who are emerging. I am rewarded by the fact that uh, for a long time what it looked like we were being indifferent, that now these young people are emerging and that a lot of artists in particular are making it necessary for their journey to reveal a commitment to black liberation and uh, the liberation of people caught in poverty. Uh, that's a joyous journey. I met some of the most noble people in my life 
in the course of that pursuit. And, uh, they have replenished and renourished my, my, my courage and, uh, have made me a great player and a joyous player, I should say. Not a great one, but a joyous one, uh, in this process. Uh, to meet the enemy on the battlefield and to defeat him, uh, puts a smile on my face <laughs> every day. Uh, cause I meet the, the enemy with great regularity. And I'm just very thankful that, uh, this generation of young people are beginning to reveal a commitment to, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, all the campaigns that have emerged. And I think that it's the heartbeat of struggle is beginning to find new participants. And I think that, uh, we will see a major difference in the not too distant future. Uh, and I, I'm glad I have lived long enough to see young people like yourself and others who have taken on the responsibility to uh, make that change sustainable. Amazing. Thank you. And uh, on the note of art, one of the things that I came across in my research for this conversation was that you had a relationship with the artist Charles White. Um, and for all of you guys who are based here in New York, um, you should know that MoMA is doing a retrospective of his work this fall. I was wondering if you could talk about your relationship with Charles White, what it was like to meet him and to collaborate together. Charles White uh, was not to be ignored. He was an enormous force in our community and his paintings are now to be seen everywhere. He was a victim, uh, he was a product, not a victim, but a product of the WPA. And in growing up in his early life through the, uh, through the WPA projects, he was given a chance to uh, take advantage of what Roosevelt had offered, uh, the right for young people within the black community to be able to study art, be able to participate in theater, to go off and become who many of us became. He was, I think, perhaps the greatest single influence in the world of fine arts. And uh, as was the case uh, during my youth, those of us who were very closely knit as friends came together first in struggle because we resisted the way in which we were treated as members of the race of, the race of color. Uh, but also, we found in each other nourishment. And uh, we stuck very close to one another. We made a difference. And in that camaraderie, we took care of each other. As a consequence, Charlie White, every time I made a buck, he got 50 cents. <laughs> and uh, I made sure that I bought all of his paintings gave most of them to institutions. Of, a lot of them sit in the universities of color. Uh, a lot of them sit in uh, uh, public space. Uh, a lot of them sit in my house. Uh, and uh, I think that the way in which Charles painted African-American life was always a, a, tablo, a, a, a canvas filled with dignity. Uh, the way in which he honored the black presence and uh, the dignity with which he painted the faces and the, and, the, and the strength of the black personality was really quite stunning. And I felt that he should be heard as much as possible. I used his film, his paintings in a number of films that uh, I made and introduced him to the Hollywood community which indulged in buying his art. And uh, I think that above and beyond everything else, his paintings reveal a lot, but his, his commitment to fighting every day against injustice, his activism, the things that he said, and things that he did uh, inspired our community and our country. Uh, if, if, uh, if many of you have never heard of him, I would suggest that uh, uh, you get your computer <laughs> and tap in uh, on, on the devices <laughs> at your disposal 
and just tap in Charlie White and you will see an abundance of art uh, about African Americans that are perhaps the most beautiful. He and uh, a couple of other painters of the day were very close uh, with one another. And uh, we had a rich, as a matter of fact, so powerful was his art that uh, he was commissioned by the U U.S. government to do murals in some of our most important public libraries and in some of our uh, transportation stations and airports right here in New York. In LaGuardia, there's a mosaic of Charlie White that's absolutely fa fantastic. And uh, Charlie made a difference in inspiring people. There's a small group of us, not so small, upon reflection, but there was a number of us who understood that the, in our art we had a mission. And that mission was to make sure that everything we did changed the plight of black people and changed the destination of America. Uh, we were successful for a while. Now we're in a place of retreat. And uh, I think that uh, as long as everybody, black and white, are comfortable with uh, the poisoning of our rivers, the destruction of life, uh, we're, we're comfortable with uh, violence in our streets, and, and uh, the fact that uh, uh, I am fascinated at the fact that the black community hasn't a much more dynamic voice in the denunciation of the National Rifle Association. The guns that are produced by this august institution of evil, uh, it amazes me that as a community that has suffered so much from the presence of guns in our daily lives and with our young people and whatnot, we have not been a more tenacious set of players in getting rid of guns uh, in the American uh, theme. Uh, I think black people alone could make a difference in what happens with the gun law if we decided to rebel against that law and made nothing movable or doable as long as there is a gun. And uh, we should, sh I mean, just shut the system down. We have the power to do that. And uh, shutting down the system may affect us, but there's a price to be paid for striking a blow against villainy but it's a price worth paying. Amen to that. <laughs> in the book, Civil Wars, uh, the writer June Jordan writes, in the context of tragedy, all, excuse me, all polite behavior is a form of self-denial. In your life, you've remained relatively optimistic and proactive in the face of some of the world's greatest tragedies. How do you keep up the momentum of this work? And especially, how, how would you encourage us in this audience and in the world to, to keep up that fight? One is led to believe that uh, in the world of struggle, to be a player is to be unrewarded. Well, there's a lot of joy in struggle. Uh, most of the worthwhile beings that I have embraced and more importantly, who sought to embrace me, was reason enough to be an activist. The rewards were incredible. I mean, I would not have met Dr. King had I not been who I was, doing the things that I did. Uh, he, I was in, in my home, the, the telephone rang, I answered it, and uh, on the other end was Dr. King. He said, uh, Mr. Belafonte, I got your telephone number from a mutual friend named Stan Levinson. And uh, I would just like to take a few minutes of your time. I'm coming to New York to be at the Abyssinia Baptist Church, uh, speaking to the ecumenical community and uh, to all the ministers that are coming. And I would like to have about 20 minutes of your time after that meeting. And I said, gladly, may I come and hear you speak to the ministers? So I went up to Abyssinia. And I listened to him, and I was absolutely, deeply touched by Dr. King's intellectual power, his gift of language, 
and that he was someone I wanted to know, I wanted in my life. So what he said would take 20 minutes. We met in the basement of the Abyssinia Church, and uh, what I thought uh, would, he said would take 20 minutes took four hours. <laughs> and at the end of that time, I was deeply committed to Dr. King and to the mission that he was on. I was struck by his youth because uh, I was 26 years old when we met. He was 24. And I looked at him and I listened to this cranium of knowledge unfold so many beautiful things that he said. And when I agreed to join the movement that he was starting, I had said to myself, I will spend two years of my life doing the best thing I could do. Well, there was one thing wrong with that. Uh, two years was just the beginning. Uh, I have now since been, for most of my life, involved in uh, social and political activism. The reward in that life, meeting Malcolm X, meeting Eleanor Roosevelt, meeting uh, Bobby Kennedy, who ultimately turned out to be a remarkable individual. There were a lot of challenges in his way. In the beginning, he was not such a nice guy. And when we met, I let him know that those were my sentiments. <laughs> and uh, he let me know that he didn't think too much of me either. <laughs> and that's how we started. We wound up by the end of his life, which was unfortunately a tragic experience. But I found in him a, ma a transformation that made all the work that I had done worthy. I say that because the rewards in being part of struggle is replete with nobility and with people. I would never, uh, Nelson Mandela would never have sought me out necessarily if I had not been an activist and on his radar screen. And I didn't do this just to be recognized by, by, by uh, mentors of such nobility, but because to be with them and to hear them and to be rewarded for the things we did together was an endless gift and uh, made me more compelled to do that. I am somewhat saddened by the fact that there isn't a greater display. And I don't mean just here in America, among African Americans who have not really uh, impactfully used the gifts that we'd achieved in making a difference, but also in the continent. I take a look at South Africa and I take a look at Nelson Mandela and what he brought to the table and Archbishop Desmond Tutu and I look at the plight of South Africans who have uh, kind of dismissed Nelson. He doesn't prevail. He's not earned the position of honor and nobility uh, from his own people that he deserves. But then in this country, we have not honored our own either. Uh, we speak with that about Dr. King, but uh, if we had truly uh, embraced him and we had read his speeches and understood the depth of his commitment to our struggle, we would have insisted that uh, all over this place there'd be King, statues of Dr. King and Malcolm X and uh, Du Bois, and I could go on and on. But I think uh, if I were to take one specific characteristic in the American social DNA, I would say the peoples of this nation is driven by one fact, that we are a nation driven by greed. And that in our pursuit of luxury and plenty and money and artifacts and possessions, we have been willing to abandon our, our responsibility to a, greater, to a greater cause. And I think that is somewhat saddening. I cannot believe that in my youth we would have permitted Trump to get as far as he's gotten without shutting this country down. That's what we did. We hit the streets. The march on Washington wasn't just a call uh, or a religious offering, it was a cause, it was a call to rebellion. And uh, 
when the nation saw that uh, there was that willingness and that appetite for change, they, we won the day. If you take a look at what went on in the march in Washington, there, there was very little said about uh, blackness, although blackness was central to the development of that demonstration. What was important was it was about labor, it was about work, it was about segregation, it was about the right to vote. That we, we umbrellaed so much. And uh, the women's movement was spawned in its newest incarnation uh, because of the civil rights movement. The youth and what happened with SNCC and what happened with Stokely Carmichael and all the players. I've been thinking of John, Diane Nash and John Lewis, a noble hero. Uh, we, we spawned a lot. And uh, this country was nourished by that fact. Now I think we've become somewhat complacent. The fact that we permit Trump to continue to malign us and to deny us should be thoroughly unacceptable. And uh, if it means shutting down the government and shutting down what this country does, we are American young men and women are in 18 zones of violent conflict in military expeditions around the world. 18 places in which American soldiers are actively engaged in killing fellow beings. And they do it clandestinely. It isn't that it's not known, it's that it's not talked about. And you took a look at the world and what's going on, instead of leading it to a place of greater re reward, we're leading it to a place of great conflict. Uh, and when, when we permit people like Donald Trump to name the game and we do nothing, then we have to take the blame. I, I wholeheartedly agree on the note of, of greed being an operating force in this nation. I also think a lot about how fear has operated in the current day as, as a thing that inhibits us. I wonder if you could speak about how in your life you've overcome fear. What's some, what, what are some of the strategies that you've enacted? Because in your life, you've been on the front lines in, in the face of such incredible risk. Dr. King had a, a, a psychological problem with fear. As a matter of fact, he developed a, a, a tick. He used to have a, kind of like an e-cup. And uh, every now and then, he'd have moments where he'd have to uh, spend more, a lot of time dealing with this uh, intervention. And then I noticed a little bit later on in our relationship that that tick went away. And I said to him, I said, uh, Doc, uh, uh, what happened to the tick? I don't see it anymore, it's gone. And he said to me, he said, well, I'll tell you, Harry, uh, it, it was easier than I thought. And I said, well, what was easier than you thought? He said, making peace with the death. He said, I no longer fear that. He said, uh, I don't want to, I said, I'd like anybody else, I'd like to live long. But uh, it's not so much how long you live as it is with the quality of life that you live. And in the pursuit of a quality of life, if we succeed, death is the smallest price we can pay. And uh, uh, he struck a chord with me where I begin to think about that. If you have, if you go at this work with fear as your dancing partner, then you'll never hear the, the beat. And I just said to along myself, well, if death is part of the reward for this journey, then let it be. Uh, I made my peace with it too. Just about that time, because Dr. King uh, gave me a vision about how to deal with fear. And uh, so I go anywhere and everywhere. And uh, I have been demonized for that fact by many, including my own community, black America. Uh, there was a time when 
uh, things that I did, which were charged me with being uh, a traitor to this country, uh, uh, and that my communist uh, uh, behavior, and I was not a communist, I, I believed deeply in the, in the teachings of Karl Marx, because long before communism adopted his philosophy as a social thinker, if you read Marx very carefully and his and his and the definitions that he brought on economic construct and how the economy was arranged to keep peoples of color in particular in a place of oppression it was a good, good way of nurturing my thoughts on the subject and uh, uh, I think that when, when when we took up the master's uh, jargon uh, black America became uh, cut off one of its great uh, tributaries of, of knowledge. Uh, it became more anti-communist than it became pro-black. And uh, I think that I lost a lot of work. A lot of parts I could have played, a lot of pictures. I, I keep him... Uh, uh, I remember my friend Sidney Poitier, uh, he and I he and I met when we were 18, and he is eight days older than I am. And we'd both just come from a service in the uh, military. And uh, when we met at the American Negro Theater, I was quite taken with him, but I also saw him as a fierce adversary. And I decided that I'd become his friend so I could contain him. <laughs> But we did things together and uh, took on challenges together that uh, gave us a very rewarding path. When I discovered the power of art, uh, it was Robeson who said, artists are the gatekeepers of truth. We are civilization's moral conscience. Art leads us to places that carry incredible moral power. And I always liked that anointing. It kind of sounded hefty. <laughs> and the idea that I was a missionary of moral courage kind of fascinated me. Mm. But I took it to heart. And I found that as long as you liked the way I sang, maybe you'd like some of the things I had to say. So I used my platform as an artist to become an activist or to or to reveal myself as an activist. Well, a lot of, I lost a lot of work. Uh, Sydney got most of the parts. <laughs> and I kind of reminded him that uh, I remember we were in a space together and I had a job as a restaurateur, as a waiter. <laughs> Highfalutin terms, restaurateur. Uh, but uh, Sydney, uh, and I'm trying to re remember the, the sequence of events correctly. He, when I, when I went into the restaurant business, so did he. And uh, uh, he delighted. His place was in Harlem called, uh, I'll think of it in a minute, Ribs in the Rough. was what he called, Ribs in the Rough. <laughs> And I went up to his place to see what the ribs in the rough looked like. And I roughed me through a bunch of ribs. <laughs> and uh, he eventually said, uh, in, 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 this, in, in this enterprise, he just said, uh, uh, I think I have to do more with my life than have a restaurant. And I said, well, how are you going to do that? And uh, he said, I think I'm going to become an actor. And I looked at him, and I laughed. Uh, I said, well, when you get there, take me with you. And that's what happened. He and I have been very close. We have shared this journey together. And on occasion, when Dr. King stepped into the space and asked for artists to be supportive, uh, we did that. Well, he was not quite as 
reckless as I was because I stepped way out there. And uh, I found that uh, doors were closing left and right. But I did not, I found that uh, if to make peace with the enemy was to get more employment and therefore abandon the importance of struggle, I couldn't square that. So I said, well, I'll stay here as long as they let me. And they let me stay there longer than I had anticipated up until now. <laughs> but I think it's, a, it's a, the decisions that people have to make. You have to come to peace with what you really want in life. What do you really want to be for your tribe? What do you really want? And uh, the rewards for, that you, you meet along the way in meeting people who are in that same space, are in that same struggle, is a greater gift than anything I could have asked for. I would not have known Dr. King and Malcolm and all the rest in the way that I came to know them. I would not have been uh, embraced by Fannie Lou Hamer, one of the greatest women of the 20th century. Uh, oh. uh, Fannie Lou and Ella Baker and others. Uh, it was a hell of a journey. And uh, I'm glad I made the choices that I made because in getting them as my colleagues, in getting them as my friend, and being able to share so many rewarding moments with them and the things that we did was way beyond anything I thought I would have. And that, that has nourished me greatly. And I look around at the world today and I just said, okay, maybe we'll come to our senses soon. I am hopeful that uh, black America, Dr. King once said, you know, uh, he went on a, he, he went to New Jersey to visit with a group of young black warlords in the black community. And he tried to win them to the idea that violence and where they were headed was not a strategy that paid off. And in listening to him speak to these young people, he said, you know, you talk about guns and taking up an armed rebellion. He said, uh, we're only 12% of this nation. We don't own gun factories. We don't own munitions plants. We don't own all of the instruments of war. For you to talk about going into battle with a, with, a, with, a, with a tribe that has a military and an air force and the Marine Corps is an act of insanity. And I'm here to say there's another way we can do this and have to do this. And he came back from that meeting quite disappointed that he had not won instantly the hearts and minds of the young people with whom he was speaking. He said, you know, I have more in common with those young men that I spoke with today than I have with, and he turned to Andy Young and to me, he says, than I have with you all. He said, but uh, I didn't win them. And the, and the failure uh, sits deep in my conscience. And he said, I'm afraid that with all that we've tried to do with integration, we have integrated into a burning house. And uh, I said, well, what would you have us do if that be the fact? If you think we're integrating into a burning house, what would you have us do with that fact? And he said, well, we'll just have to become firemen. And I looked at him and I said, Doc, I'm out of here. <laughs> Because the idea that we had to take on the responsibility of changing an immoral America uh, was, was not my idea of how this game was to be played. And he said, we're the only ones that can change it. He said, without America dealing squarely with the issue of race and letting people of color have their honorable place among civilized beings, this country will never ever survive and it will not find a happy day because it is our task as peoples of color to make it uncomfortable for them to be comfortable with our demise. Thank you, Mr. Belafonte. Thank you all for joining us. This has been such a pleasure. We're all set.
back home. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole other world of great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. Okay, enough URLs for now. Thanks for listening.